Hello, and welcome back to the What The Fork podcast in association with Viper Goalkeeping. Welcome back to the What The Fork podcast. We've got one of those Sunderland specials again today. Today's guest is a man whose career spanned over 400 games for the likes of Brighton and Hove Albion, Brentford and Cardiff. And we'll be chatting with him today about a coaching career that has so far taken him from Havant and Waterlooville and Brighton to Sunderland all the way to Shanghai. But we're going to specifically be discussing his time at Sunderland AFC in depth. Welcome to the show, Charlie Oatway. How are you doing, mate? You all right? Well, yeah, I mean, it's been a long time and it. it's been a new situation. The whole countries in the world have gone through in it and it's, it's totally different for everybody and, and everybody's got to take it differently and they have taken it differently the way they've dealt with it. And I think it's, it's been such a tough time for a lot of people. But to be honest, we had a little and so um, that's killed off two and a half months um, straight away because it's gone so quickly for us. So we've been quite fortunate in that aspect, but a lot of people have suffered. Yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. That's that's perfect timing, that. If you wanted a couple of months to look oh. after a little one, perfect timing, that, mate. I think someone was definitely looking over us because that was absolutely perfect timing because, like I said, it has killed two and a half months completely um, without even knowing that, it's, you know, we've been doing what we've been doing. And it's been a learning curve. It's been a learning curve for everyone in, in, in the world, you know, what we're all dealing with at the moment. And, but, you know, you've got to get through it somehow. Now, first things first, I've got to address it, and I'm sure it's not the first time you've been asked this, but your full name, Anthony, Philip, David, Terry, Frank, Donald, Stanley, Jerry, Gordon, Stephen, James, Oatway, named after the full first, I've probably got that wrong, but the full QPR first team squad, do you ever feel like you were like destined to be involved in football after that, that kind of opening to the world? Well, you was one of the, you're one of the first people who's ever got the name spot on. Have a perfect. Normally, there's a curveball with a you know one <laughs> uh, one name or another, but uh, you got it spot on. Um, yeah, it was just just my family background and where we lived and things like that. And my dad likes the beer and he liked to gamble, so he had a bet with someone. I don't know who, and I don't care particularly because <laughs> I'm the one who's been stuck with him. But um, yeah, and that's he ended up. I'm the youngest of five, um, and this person said if if it's a boy. Would you name him after the QBR and he's the bet? And he said, Yes, I would. And it, hence it happening. Funny so thing was, that's how I got the name. When I was reading your name, I was thinking, What must his passport look like? Do you have to have like another page on the passport? Can you shorten it down on your passport? Well, that's the thing is the passport don't have any anything. All your passport has is your first and your middle name. So your middle name would be the first one of your middle names. But my, my um, birth certificate has got them all. <laughs> my birth certificate has got them all. So that's well hidden away. A good start, though. Who's got the longest name in football history? Yeah, it's not Ronaldinho, I'll tell you that. It's Charlie Oakley, well, technically. Tell you what, it's not something <laughs> I wanted in football, I'll tell you. I wouldn't mind a couple of them <laughs> medals for different things, but that wouldn't be one of them. Guinness World Record, potentially. I wonder if everyone's ever checked out what the longest name in football is, but I bet you'd have a decent chance at it. Um, I think I'd have a good chance. I think I've got it. Since you've, obviously, we're going to be discussing Gus, Tano, um, I've even called him Tano, and I was calling him Mauricio Tirico, I don't even know if I've got the pronunciation right, but Gus was calling him Tano, so I'll go with Tano, it's easier to say, but since you've left Shanghai, have um, I got a spot on? I tried my best, didn't do too bad, but what have you been up to since, obviously, leaving Shanghai? Well, to be honest, it's, it's one of them ones with what we do, like you would probably imagine and you know, is that you're a long time 
out of the game at times. You know, there's periods where you go a year or six months, eight months, and you're not, you know, you're out of the game. So what I do is I go and do local coach, a charity around here called, well, you know him, Russell Martin. Yeah. Um, Russell Martin, from, who used to play for Norwich, he's got a, and now he's manager of MK Dogs. But um, yeah. he's got a charity around here. So I just go and do some coaching around with the local kids and, and keep my, my hand in, really. Um, do a bit of coaching for different clubs that I know, just to keep my hand in and keep busy. Um, <clears throat> other than that, that's, that's, that's literally what I do regarding football. But I, I normally go and watch a game on a Saturday. Yeah. Whoever it is, a non-league game, a league game, whatever, just to just go and keep you know keep watching games because obviously, like you, I love it. So you know, I'm not going to stop doing that. Yeah, I think that's probably been one of the toughest toughest points of the the lockdown, hasn't it? The the lack of game time. I was just saying, sort of off air, I haven't missed something too much. But if I'm if I'm completely honest, I've missed the the crack and the the banter and so to speak, and just going in and being with people, isn't it? It's what it's all about. That's exactly what it is. It's, it's, it's a point of, I don't really miss the football at home. I could take it or leave it football at home, but going there on a Saturday afternoon is literally like a must for me. Yeah. And it could be a local game. I like just hearing people's voices. I like the, you know, the crowd. I like to see the game. I like to see people giving it their all. So for me, Saturday afternoon is, is, is like a must for me. Regarding watching the football at home, I'm not an avid fan of anyone in particular. So I don't need to watch QPR when they're playing at home. I don't need to watch, you know. So for me, if I could go and watch a game live, I'll go and do that instead. Yeah. I think, if I correct me if I'm wrong here, I could be completely wrong, but I think your coaching career started with Haven Waterlooville, didn't you? Started as a player and assistant manager, is that right? Yeah, well, what happened is I, I, I finished my career. Um, and as I was finishing my career, a friend of mine where I went to work for Albion the community, which was a charitable arm of Brighton Football Club. Yeah. Um, we started making, pushing me to get my coaching uh, badges. So I started doing my coaching badges. I went to Hamden Waterlooville because I couldn't play full time anymore, but I still needed the drug of playing. So I, I went to Hamden Waterlooville, played there. We had quite a successful little run in the FA Cup. Um, and um, I was playing there and I was carrying on doing my coaching badges, but the manager left. The assistant got the job and he asked me, would I help him? And so that pushed me even more to do my coaching badges. Yeah. So, because I knew the amount of football what come, uh, footballers will come out of the game and they're desperate to be coaches and they're desperate to go into, back into the game. I wasn't desperate. <clears throat> I wasn't desperate, where, you know, but as soon as I started playing like non-league, started getting my coaching badges, that's when I've become more and more desperate to be back involved in it, con you know, completely full time. And the move to, to Brighton happened quite fast, though, didn't it? Because I think it was like July 2009. But by by the time Brighton came along, I think it was maybe December 2009. So obviously everyone knows there's a relationship with Brighton. And I had read a little bit like you were part of the, the community scheme. But where did the relationship with, with Gus Poyet come well, from? Because obviously you've got to have that relationship that, too. That was quite strange because <clears throat> Mickey Adams phoned me up and he was at Port Vale at the time. You know, he had no money. But he could I go in on a part-time basis, match day? So I said, um, yeah, I'll go in there on a match day, um, but I've got to run it past the club. So I run it past the club, and the club said, no, you won't be doing that. Brighton said, you won't be doing that. What you'll do on a Saturday, they will pay me more money. Match day at home games, go in and help out Russell Slade at the time, who was the manager. And yeah. when they're away, you go travelling and watch a player that we're looking at or whatever. Fine, that suited me down to the ground. And I was doing a little bit with the reserves on a Tuesday night. So Gus got the job. I got a phone call. 
Sam, would you help him? Um, Gus has got the job. Would you help him for a couple of weeks? In fact, I was ordered by the club anyway, but I would, would have done it anyway. I would have wanted to do it. Um, help him for a couple of weeks till we get settled. So I said, yeah, no problem. Um, and that's how the relationship started, really. It was a case of um, the club needed someone to bed him in to the club and help him out, you know, just rub away the cobwebs, really, just to keep him keep him ticking over for a couple of weeks. And after a week, he asked the club that he took, well, he told the club he wanted me to stay on. And with Gus, I mean, obviously he's been a guest on this, guest on this show as well. And everyone can see what Gus is like. And he's a, a huge personality. He's a huge, huge personality. He's madly passionate, which probably matches the way you are as well, but in a different way. But what's your first meeting like with Gus? Like, how does that, does that relationship just bond straight away then? Well, it was quite strange because he got told about me I was going to help him um, and I don't know who phoned who <clears throat> but he spoke to Dennis Wise and Dennis I grew up with Dennis what my brothers did and Dennis said a million percent you can trust him um, and that he wouldn't let you down you can trust him so we had our first meeting the next morning and there's every member of staff there must have been about at that time eight or nine which nowadays in the Premier League it would be 29, but it was about eight or nine of us. And he went round the room and he, and he named, give him your name, tell him what you do. And I went to me and I went, I'm Charlie Lowry. He said, I don't worry, I know about you. And just like, pied it off. And, you know, he was, from then on, we got on great. He knew that from what he's been told that he could trust me and I'll do my best to help him. I'll be honest with you. It's, I was going to say I've been told or I've heard, but this is a lie. It's just it's, it's common knowledge that you're a bit of a mischief maker and a bit of the joker of the gang. Um, what's the best prank that you've ever played on Gus? Oh, to be honest, I don't think I've ever done it with Gus. The best thing I do about Gus, the best thing I do, and I enjoy doing it, <clears throat> is winking at all the players or Tano and winding Gus up. And then him, him biting with his... Spanish accent, you know, you fucking little fucking bastard. Don't fucking tell him anything. Don't fucking tell him. That's what he tells everyone. Don't fucking tell him. He tell everybody. Don't tell him. So <laughs> my best thing is just to wind him up on a daily basis. Even if it's when he says to me, make tea, and I go and get someone else to make the tea. And he just says, you, you fucking do it. You fucking. <laughs> so he's, um, it's just to get him to swear, which makes me die. But yeah. I can do that literally on a regular basis. And, and the other players laugh and that and but Tano grasses me up all the time. <laughs> I whenever whenever someone mentions uh Tano as it, as it is, I just always have that I've gone too far ahead already, but I always that visualization of his celebration at St James's when we're bagged in the last minute. I forever love him for that just momentary like hands out, smiling face and being able to take in all of that kind of atmosphere. It was just brilliant. Like that's that's my abiding memory of him. But uh, no, I actually managed to get Gus to swear on the podcast as well, which is quite funny. And uh, I understand exactly what you mean by that. Um, he learn when he does it. <laughs> but with Tano, Tano's a different. Tano's probably is a person that I can honestly say that I've never met someone like in football. Yeah. And what I mean by that is the man is so passionate, like all of us, like all of us. I don't mean in that way. Very quiet watches people and how things are going. Very knowledgeable about the game, you know, but he keeps his opinion to himself quite quite a lot and, and he's that way. But that moment and them moments that we've had together as coaches when we beat Newcastle, when we have beat Newcastle, Barini's goal, you know, you never see celebrations that this man will do. 
because that's you know it it, it just builds up in him that moment it builds up in me in the game and, and things like that with them sort of moments for him it just sets him off it's like letting a wild horse off you know it's, it's an excellent it's an excellent thing to see um it just wish we, we could have it more and everyone does in football more than what we you do or what we get you know yeah Talking about like obviously Gus and Tano, obviously I think both are defined if you're looking at them as a, a management team, if you prefer, as a possession-based sort of in love with passing and the kind of possession-based game. I think I, I was reading a few interviews that you'd done whilst you were at Brighton, and I think you admitted that you know you were unsure if he could implement that style in the lower divisions. So when you become part of the coaching team and you think oh, I'm not sure if you could do this in League One, which I think is where Brighton were at the time. That's right. Yeah. How do you go about implementing the style on that team and be that Brighton or be that Sunderland? How do you start saying this is how we're going to play and this is why? The quite is quite a simple answer, really, because the simple answer is because I took it the way that they wanted a template of how to play. Yes, they did, but first and foremost, I thought they would start higher up the pitch. They didn't. The first game that they come, one of the first games they come to watch, I can't remember if it was the first game. It was a reserve game. And they took out, the reserve captain was playing. I mentioned his name, but he, were, he was playing. He was meant to play on a Saturday. But I said, no, he's not playing. Him and Tano was talking in Spanish. I'm just getting to know him. So they were talking. And they didn't play the kid because they didn't think he defended right. So the first and foremost of the way that they look at football is your defensive duties. Straight away, defensive duties. The goalkeeper on the back four, what, what are they doing? What are they doing? How are they defending? And it was me what got it wrong because I'm assuming they're going to start in the middle of the park and we're going to spread out wide and we're going to pass the ball. No, no, no. Start from the back. That comes later. And that's what I learned. And I couldn't believe what I saw the next season because that year, I think he took over in November, beginning of December time, yeah. something like that. And we were struggling to get points, get, you know, to stay up. We stayed up and then did we stay up? We didn't spend an absolute fortune the next year. But because they had them two had time to have the whole pre-season with the players that they wanted and had. They managed to set this template up and religiously coach it and religiously go through it. How you defend, how we attack and how we keep the ball. That's what made us successful that, that year was mainly them getting the time with the players that they had. Talking about that Brighton team, and again, I'm jumping far too far ahead, but I think it'd be fair to say that the key player in that Brighton team was Liam Bridcut. And I, I'm no expert on Brighton, but I have got a friend who's a Brighton fan and he absolutely loved Liam Bridcut. Like, worshipped the ground that he walked on. Um, I think, and you may have a different opinion on, on me with this, but key to Brighton's success, came to Sunderland, had one of the best debuts I've ever seen in my life at Newcastle, but realistically probably didn't work out with Sunderland. Is there a reason you think Bridcut, and that's if you agree with me, didn't work or become as key as he was at Brighton at Sunderland, do you think? I think there was a couple of things. I think there was a lot of, there was a bit of a cloud over him leaving Brighton and um, how much we were paying, how not paying, and what was going on. I think they come with a big, um, I wouldn't say big name, but he definitely come with I know what you mean. a, a so-called so big price. Um, and I don't know, I mean, it showed in that game, you won't get a bigger game in, you know, in the world, in the sense of Newcastle Sunderland as a derby. You get derbies all around the world, but that's just as aggressive or as passionate as anywhere in the world. You know, yeah. I beg to differ with anybody. Um, 
So, and that kid come out shining, shining colours. You know, he, he come out flying and probably the best player, if not on the park on that day. So we He's knew good. that he had it. We knew that he could definitely help us along the lines. Then he had a couple of injuries. Then he come back and I think he had, may had a suspension or something like that, maybe. But yeah, we was we was we was as baffled as anybody else, uh, as, uh, even him. You know, as, as much as he was, because at that time I think he was sniffing around the Scottish uh, squad, yeah, and things like that. And you know, it was really looking promising for him. But sometimes these sort of things happen with players. And you know it better than anyone, you know, being a Sunderland fan, you know, it's, it's, it's a case of these expectations of players and they come in. It's just, a, and not only that, with Liam, he, he was playing a certain way. We were still fighting relegation. He was playing for a Brighton team that was, you know, doing well, yeah. reasonably well. Maybe that had a factor in it. Maybe, maybe it didn't. Um, but like anything, you can only look at things the way that you want to look at it. And I try to look at it open-mindedly and the bigger portion of it. And maybe, maybe he struggled with that, possibly. Maybe we didn't help him in certain aspects, you know, whatever. But it was a shame it didn't work because, you know, the kid, he really did do well for us at Brighton. Yeah, and I think with Bridcut as well, and just in the eyes of fairness, I mean, like I've said openly, I don't think it worked. But on the flip side, um, great debut. But and I think Gus kind of made me change my opinion on this a little bit. He said, you know, we brought Bridcut in, and I think Bridcut. When we're talking about big signing, I think because he was those quotes that flew around him, like Gus said, I think if he played for Real Madrid, if he was manager of Real Madrid, he would have signed him. So there was this hype around him, as well as like this is kind of is this going to be the guy that starts this position uh, possession based game and defines it when we put him in. But as it was, and and Gus sort of changed my opinion on it a little bit. Said if you look, you know, that didn't work out. But Lee Catamore knew based on that game how good Lee Catamore had to be. And to be fair, Lee Catamore, the best career, yeah, best spell he ever had at something in his career was when yourself and Gus were there. Absolutely, in my opinion. Yeah, because we spoke about this with Gus, and, and um, I remember now you've just brought it up and us talking about it. And I'm saying, we were saying, like, Brad Cutwell, can we get more? And he said, you know, now Liam's got to fight for his place. So, because Cats was doing so well. And it was like, well, then that's money well spent. Because if it makes us stay in the Premier League and it makes everything okay and, and you know, tick along, then so be it. That's money well spent. Um, so, yeah, it, I remember us having that conversation. <clears throat> but for me, it just just seemed like it, the penny didn't drop. You yeah. Know? And it didn't. But it did drop, it dropped. But it didn't drop enough, um, you know, for us to get enough out of him and the club to see the player that we saw at Brighton. Did that play... I mean, that was really early in Bridcut's career at Sunderland, to be fair, so maybe not. But Cats almost went to Stoke literally weeks later. And I think it was Gus that actually stopped that, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah. What was the yeah, thing behind it, as far as you know? It was important to us. It, it was simply simple as that. It was important to us, important to the club. He knew the situation that we was in. He knew everyone at the ground um, and we didn't want him to go. He was not, a, you know, he was never a problem for us, never caused us a problem. Um, so why would we want him to go? He was, he was literally one of our best players. So we, at that time, we didn't want him to go. I remember that. I mean, I don't know who stopped it completely. You know, that goes, that may go down to the money men. But, um, but Gus certainly had the opinion and the thought of, no, we don't want him to go. 
Do you think the kind of form that Cats put in towards, especially probably the second season, back end of the first season that you were here, do you think, because I remember at the time, and I might be maybe laughed at now, but he was, he was in the reckoning for an England call-up. Do you think he would have been deserving yeah. of it at the time? Well, the, the position that we asked him to play, and, and well, Gus asked him, and Tanner asked him to play, was not only a position that weren't, it, was, it wasn't alien to him, far from yeah. it, but, you know, it was a, just a tweak, a few tweaks of what they, they bring to, to the party um, in Gus and Tano with the way that they want to defend, what we expect of the holding midfield player to bring in. And I, I think that helped Cats a little bit. I'm not saying Cats was Cats. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying I think these little bits helped him. And um, it was, you know, as a holding midfield player at that time, he was doing a magnificent job, a magnificent job. And if, if we was a team that was middle of the table, maybe he would have got that call up no matter what. Yeah, but because we was in that situation that we was in, maybe there it was a little bit more frowned upon. I don't know, but I think if we'd have been higher up the table, there's a good possibility he would have definitely. You know, I think he would have definitely got a call up. Yeah, I've probably gone a bit too far ahead, so I'll rewind back a little no. bit. But um, no obviously, we were touching on Brighton. I suppose is where we went down. I've gone down the Liam Bridgett rabbit hole, um, but you helped them get from League One all the way up to the well, what ended up being the Premiership. Um, it was the cusp of it at the time when I think Gus got sacked. But come October, you obviously appointed it someone. When he said he was taking the job, obviously he took you and Tano as well. But um, what has he said to you and what were your thoughts on going to Sunderland? Well, we, he, we, would, we were speaking um, a couple of weeks before, looking at games, looking at, you know, and every now and then we throw each, throw each other a curveball of, of a club or the way that a team are playing. And he phoned me, if I remember the games right, Sunderland had Liverpool on the Sunday, the week before we got the job, or the week before, two weeks before we got the job. I think it was. 1-1, one, one, I, I think it might have been 1-1. One, one. Liverpool at home. We were watching the game. Anyway, we weren't with each other. He phoned me at half-time. We had a nag, what do you think? And just looking at the players, came, you know, bearing in mind at that time, I can't remember how many points. I think there was about seven or eight games gone. Um, do you, you know what, what's your opinion? And, and I just thought to myself, knowing Sunderland, what I know of it, with the fan base and and the way that you guys are, if you can get them playing to a certain way, something different from what they're used to playing. Like, I don't mean the same way. I mean something different with the Gus and Tano sort of spice on it, if you like. I just thought it could be a place. Not only could you get rocking, but you could get them playing such attractive football with that fan base behind you, it could become, you know, a 12th man constantly. Um, and that was my opinion towards that situation. Not knowing anything about the finances, not knowing anything about what's going on at the club. That was just my personal opinion. And obviously looking at the players that we'd already had, who, who was at that club already, I just thought, well, maybe, you know, imagine if you can get a little bit of money to spend. Um, you know, so I, I, I always thought, you know, the glass was you know, half full. Yeah. And to be fair, take out maybe the last few months, it was a hell of a ride, wasn't it? Through that 18 months, let's be honest. And it was rocking at points. It really was. But I think if you look back at, you know, the team that you inherited, it was full of really talented players. But let's, let's remember, this was a team bottom of the league, I think after seven or eight games, one point, Paolo Di Canio was, whatever your opinion is, was a divisive figure. The likes of, Phil Barsley, Lee Catamore were basically not just taken out the team, they were like exonerated from the, the, the 
training pitch at points. Um, we picked up the one point in seven, I think it was. So at the very least, you could say it was a demoralized or divided dressing room. So what players in the squad did you pinpoint as the characters that could help pick the club back up and implement and buy into the plans that you wanted to put in place? Well, the first thing that Gus and Tano Dunham was literally just say to everyone, everyone, like any manager, they're not, they're not reinventing the wheel, but everyone's got a clean slate. Everybody's got a clean slate. And then, if I remember rightly, it was an international break. Yeah. I and believe so. So we didn't, we didn't have as many there. So you bring back Phil, you bring back Lee um, into a, a squad. It made it easier to rebuild that little bit, I think, with little bits that we, we were doing. I'm not too sure if we even had a meal with that group. We took them out for a meal or, or some lunch or something like that, um, just to sit down and talk football. And, and Gus had a couple of interview, uh, chats with a couple of the players on a one-on-one basis, two-on-two, whatever, you know, with Tano as well. Um, just tried to build confidence in them in us, let alone us in them, um, and getting them to know us. So it gave me a chance on a personal level to get to know eight or nine players because that's all we had. Um, the Phils, the Lees, you know, big names, you know, big for, for us um, to go into and, and to get to feel of each other and them to know that, excuse my language, I am a, a bit of a Mickey taker. I was going to use a different word. but Use what you want. So, <laughs> and get them to feel that I'm the one. If there's anyone that they've, if they've got any issues, come to me. If they don't want to go to the gaffer, come to me. Tano and the gaffer, you know, they, they, we, I can bring that to them if, if it's needed. I just wanted that on a personal level to get that trust with them that they knew I'm on their side. I'm on the gaffer's side, I'm on the club's side, but I'm on their side. And if I can, you know, if I can do anything to help without it getting to that level, I'm the one to come to. So I give members of staff, um, all the boys, my phone number straight away so they knew come to me and then if there's a problem, I can go to the gaffer. So it just watered it down just to try to build some confidence. And that's what the gaffer and Tano obviously wanted as well, was that they, they, built, they felt that they were comfortable with the three or four of us, with Andy, or five of us, with uh, Antonio Pintos, the fitness coach as well. Could you tell the squad was, um, I don't know how to describe it, maybe on the defensive because they'd had six months of, Paolo Di Canio, which let's be honest, everyone I've spoken to said coaching-wise, his ideas weren't bad, but I think it's well known that he was regimented. There was no tomato sauce. And I think a lot of players felt like they were maybe like children or maybe a bit on the back burner. Could you, could you feel that from them, that like they were a bit defensive or were they quite open to the new experience? Well, they, was, they, was, they were very open about what had gone on. Yeah. Um, they were telling us about different stories and that. But regarding certain things that Paolo done was probably no different from what we would do and probably no different from a lot of lot of managers and coaches in the world nowadays. Yeah. They don't like tomato sauce, they don't like ketchups, they don't like uh, they don't like um sauces in pastas. They like it very plain, very basic, no upset tummies, no, you know, it's it's literally the way that the game's gone. And and rightly so. It's only for the benefit of the player. Um, so Paolo on that scenario was probably probably right. You know, they don't they don't like it, um, and it's for us, to, especially the British players, to to jump on board on them, a lot of these scenarios and a lot of these way of thinking about, especially your diet. Yeah, and it's changed a lot, and I think um, 
there's been a numerous set of coaches that came through in the 90s that changed that. And then I think a lot of the time, you know, Paolo Di Canio gets a bit of a bad rap. And I think rightly or wrongly, whichever way you, you sit on that fence. But it would be fair to say there was a definite change within that squad when you, Gus and yourself and everyone came in. So something had changed somewhere. Um, but you talked before about being like that go-between, which very much reminded me of Bobby Saxon back in the Peter Reid days. It felt like he was kind of the the player's friend, but also the gaffer's right-hand man at the same time. I think when the stress and the pressure of the Premier League, especially at the bottom, is that heavy on the players, you do need characters that are maybe a little bit more light-hearted as well as the resilient ones. But which were the players that were kind of the life and soul of the party that you instantly were just like, yeah, we need a bit more of that? I, I, I mean, I've got so much time for Wes Brown. I've, I think the kid is <clears throat> he's, he's different class and, you know, he's got one of them attitude. He, he, took, it, he took it when we lost badly yeah. but he knew the next day we had to come in and try putting a smile on the face um he he was he was one what really stuck out in my mind um you can't tell a kid anything about football he's been there seen it done it but he knew he knew from our perspective that we needed to come in the next day if it was a sunday saying we had a game on a tuesday or wednesday or whatever we played on saturday and got beat we had to try putting smiles on the faces and, and the players were a borderline not playing on the bench or whatever. We had to get them playing to train, to be prepared to train on the Tuesday and the Wednesday, or play on the Tuesday or the Wednesday uh, again. So it was really, and he was one of them sort. And if he was on the bench or he was playing or he weren't, he always still tried to, to help us a lot. I do, I do respect him for that. Yeah, um, in my experience in an hour and a half conversation, yeah, really, really great guy. And I think... And I'm coming from a fan's perspective with this. And I think I've asked the question a few times and it's every single time I've had the same answer, but I'll ask it anyway. A lot of the time there was a worry around those years that the John O'Shea, the Wes Brown, the Catamore, the Phil Barsley were the, the rotten core and it was because they'd been there that long. That's why we'd continue to struggle. Couldn't be further from the truth from what I've been told. Would you agree with that? Yeah, completely. Yeah, completely. I mean, them, them boys, um, they, uh, excuse my language, but they give the shit. Um, and they, they care. I think the bigger problem that the club had was not on the playing level. It weren't the playing side. It was obviously we needed better players. I mean, yeah. who, what manager in, the, in, in any league says that we don't need better players if we want to achieve? We needed better players. We could have done with getting them some help, some better help maybe than what we, we managed to achieve or managed to bring in. Maybe that. But so we can take responsibility as coaches and managers, but. You know, I don't think that, that it would be fair to blame them uh, wholehearted for the situation that Sunderland have gone through year after year, in a sense, of fighting relegations and, you know, promotions, you know, that sort of thing. And no, that, that wouldn't be fair, certainly in my opinion, anyway. Looking at, you know, the team and the way it ended up going in the first few months when, when Gus was there, the, the Swansea game was obviously awful. Um, it was the first game, but then... As a fan, you look at the Newcastle game, the Barini game, and you go, oh, that's when it started and the players' confidence came back. But it's sometimes different when you're inside of the club as opposed to just being a fan of it. For you as a coach, when did you start seeing the players buy into what you were trying to do and get that bit of confidence back? At what point did you start thinking, hang on a minute, we, we could stay up here, we could be all right? It's a good question. I, I think, for me, the way that I am and the way that I look at it, I, I think... I find it so hard to get on a level par. 
So in a sense of, you know, all of a sudden you, you, you get beat by Swansea away or Swansea and then you, you beat Newcastle, like you're going up, you're going down, you're going up and down. So for me to look on a training, it was training session basis for me to look and I couldn't give you a precise sort of week that was or, or when that was, but it was definitely when we started, as Gus and Tano would do, defend better in training sessions. When we was going on the sideline, he's getting it. He's getting it. He's getting it now. And it was that sort of thing what was what got us through it, you know. And I know the miracle at the end of, of that first season, and people talk about that. But it was times like that that we kept ourselves in games, um, and it was mainly mainly because of the, we wanted to play a lot better football than what we played, you know. That was definite. But we couldn't. We had to defend better. We had to make sure that we didn't concede goals, and you know, we we had to make sure that we stayed in games. And that was that was the bit when I started to see it in training sessions, not not a specific game itself. How important do you think? Because I think it, it goes unnoticed sometimes. But Key is one of my favourite players we've ever had. I don't know why. I'm sure people disagree with me, but when he was signed, he was uh, the number four. He was basically the Catamore role. But by the time it got to January, he was more like the number ten. Um, do you think that was one of the greatest successes of your era? Is basically changing the way that that Key played. Without a shadow of a doubt, I mean, we love Key. Um, he was absolutely. If I don't remember, if I remember, I might be wrong. Was he not a centre half at first? He played centre half. All the line Yeah, he played yeah. centre half at Celtic a little bit, and then number and, four. And that's, and... that's when I first saw him, and then it was like a holding midfield player. Then he he played a you know one of the the two more like floating sort of players. We played him out wider. I mean, the boy just got football um, technically. An absolute wonder. Yeah. I thought he was one of our, well, one of our better players. I mean, I thought he was excellent. And any time that he had a, an injury, he kept trying to come back to play. Um, you know, and that's that's character, and that's that's an attitude. Um, and he knew that we was we was in trouble, but he kept coming out, kept trying to get training sessions under his belt, and kept trying to play games. But an uh, excellent, talented footballer. Excellent. Brilliant footballer. Great. And the one thing I want to touch on with Key, and I hadn't planned to ask this, but you've just reminded me when you talked about his attitude. Um, I think it would be wrong of me to say that there wasn't a slight perception in the Sunderland fan base that he, I think he got a knee injury in about March, April time, just before the, the great escape, basically. He didn't play a part in it because he was injured. And there's a perception that goes around that he, he basically couldn't be bothered anymore because he wanted to make sure he was fit for the World Cup. And I don't right. think anyone's ever asked that. Do you think that's, that's accurate or could you not question his, his attitude towards someone? Uh, I would say 100% that is not accurate. Good. I would say 100%. Um, the way that the kid was, and, that, and bearing in mind, he, he wanted to go into that playing games. He didn't want to go into that not playing games. I mean, that, that would, you know, that would defeat the object a little bit. I mean, he's big enough uh, as a player in the country to, to, to guarantee his place, if they, even if they thought he was borderline 50-50. But I think he... Million percent, he would have wanted to go into that into them games, playing games. So he would have wanted to be match fit and things like that. So for me, I wouldn't even give that a thought personally. Yeah. And it's knowing always, the animal, and knowing the animal myself, I would definitely say no. It's always been a weird thing that I, when you don't know, you, you don't comment on it. My opinion probably swayed more the fact that he wasn't like that because he always seemed committed to the cause to me. Um, but I just thought I'd never really asked that, and there is, there is a weird is, perception it, with it. If it was a centre-half, you know, cuts all over his face and he's got a bad knee, oh, no, he, he would definitely wouldn't throw the towel in. He wouldn't. Just so he can go, you know, and play for England or, or yeah. Scotland or Wales or whatever. No, no, no. 
because he's a, a, a player what's more flamboyant, more technically better, you know, we've got to put a, a doubt over his head. He was, he, was, he was there just as much as any, any player that I've ever seen in my career, playing career or, or coaching career. He wanted to play and he'd he done a fantastic job for us and he was a pleasure to work with. Fantastic player, really great player. And I think he was absolutely vital in the team that basically got us towards, I think it was 12th after we beat, after we beat uh, Newcastle away from home, I think it was. Yeah, it was. I think we were, were 12th. Obviously, didn't play a part in the Great Escape, but during that time frame when we're beating Newcastle and, and, and whatnot and you know getting results against Man City, we went on this tremendous cup run. Um, that basically came out of absolutely nowhere because I think the first game that you would have had in that competition in the League Cup would have been Southampton and then it goes straight into the Chelsea game. How important was the cup run to the morale of the squad in terms of improving the league position as well? I think it's one of them ones you can ask um, uh, any a coach or manager and it'd be a toss of a coin. You know, yeah. If you got relegated, they'd say, no, that killed us. Yeah. That definitely killed us. You stayed up and you go to it and play Man City in the cup final. That helped us. So it all depends who you're talking to. I mean, it, I, for me, I think it definitely kept us ticking over. I think it kept people interested. Um, you know, instead of worrying about at the end of the season, whatever happens, I'm flying off back to my country. I'm flying here or I'm fly, flying there. It kept everyone, I think, involved. And the main thing, like you know better than anyone, it kept the fans involved. Yeah. It kept them believing in something, even you know when it was borderline mathematically near enough impossible. You know, it still kept them involved. It still kept them, you know, going down to Chelsea and places like that. You know, it still kept them wanting wanting us to get results, which definitely benefited us as a as a management group and a squad. Talking about the uh, the cup run itself, my favourite Sunderland memory, not just favourite, you know. Uh, memory in the cup competition my favorite football memory probably is that semi-final and I always try to think when I speak to people who are involved in it how do I word this question but there's no other way to word it other than you know what are your memories of the semi-final at Old Trafford and what was the night out like afterwards <laughs> well I'll tell you what was what was really funny is um you ever seen a a beetle be turned on his back yes you know when a beetle's on his back and it can't yeah, yeah. get his leg back up well, we all had them fixed coats on on the, on the sidelines, and I remember us. I remember when we we scored, and Cookie has run and jumped and tried to jump on Gus Tano and everyone like that, fell back, and he's got this big puffer jacket on, and all I could see was his arms and his legs were going like that. <laughs> so I couldn't stop laughing, but I didn't have the decency to go and help him. I just left him, <laughs> and it seemed like he was there for hours, but. That was probably one of my biggest memories. And the other one was being in the changing room. It's just, you know, I never had it as a playing career and I never had it in a, you know, as a coaching career. So it was nice to be part of something so big. And you were quiet was, afterwards. What did we do afterwards? No, I think we had a good drink on the coach on the way back. Um, yeah, a couple of the boys had some of that stuff. That was that oh, stuff the that you... Scoof. So that soon come out and I finally started feeling all sick and but um, <laughs> it, it was just fantastic. It was just, you know, what an achievement. And, and the next day we got a phone call from, which was nice from, well, the coaching staff, not, I don't think Gaffer and Tano did, but I think they met Mags, but we got a phone call from Mags and saying thank you and well done. And the, the, uh, the, pre, uh, the chairman would like to thank you and 
said to well done for you staff you've, you've really given it a go since you've been here and which was a nice I thought was a nice personal touch um which you know and then all the smiles that you get from the dinner ladies in there what a great staff and you know people like that and it was just and the groundsmen and people like that what great guys um we was just over the moon for all of them and we was literally over the moon for them with um that particular semi-final as it was i think ella short was there if i, if I remember rightly and I've had a few people on the show that have worked under him and haven't had the best experience. I've had some that have said he was sound, but what was what was your experience of Ella Short from the experience you had if you'd met him? I met him two or three times and very briefly. Um, very pleasant. Told me told us not to call him chairman, it's Ellis. Um, very pleasant, very big guy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I thought, you know, whichever one's big to me, but he, yeah, he seemed a nice enough, nice enough fellow, and and like I said, he he said, "Don't call me like chairman. Just my name's Ellison." That was it, and spoke to us for about five minutes, and then we left them to get down to business and talk whatever they were talking about. Every time I met him, I remember him. I remember him at the cup final. Was it the cup final after the game? After the cup final, he come downstairs with his wife and son, I think, mm-hmm. and asked to have a photo with Gus. Um, which I, again, I thought was a nice touch considering we'd just been beaten. Um, so, yeah, my, my, my thoughts of him as, as a man was pleasant enough. I think it would be fair to say, and again, I'm speaking from a fan's perspective, there's mistakes made during his, his term. There's a reason we're in League One. But one thing I've never felt you could criticise with Ella Short was that he, he was, for an American or a Texan, he was something through and through. He really wanted us to achieve. He just didn't know how to do it. I think that would be the best way to describe him. And he made mistakes trying to do it. That, that's my thought. Yeah, it was like, yeah, it seemed like from an, an outsider, an outsider going in and seeing what I saw and, and what happened while we were there, it seemed like at times it was like square pegs for round holes constantly. It was like never cutting it down to the root and starting from fresh and doing it properly. It just seemed... And I'm not blaming him for that. I'm just saying that's what seemed what was happening quite a lot around the club at that time. And obviously the buck does stop with him, I suppose, because he's the chairman. But that's what it just seemed like. And it just it's a shame that we didn't cut down to the roots in certain aspects of the club and, and you know, start fresh. And if we did, I think, well, we wouldn't be in this situation. Yeah, no, I agree. Absolutely, 100%. Um, as it was, you're talking about Wembley. Uh, as we got there as well on the cup run and Wembley at half time discussed this with, with Gus and discussed it with a lot of my friends and my family and fellow supporters half time was like the last real time when I honestly felt myself hang on we might not do a Sunland here and the reason for that wasn't just because we were in the lead and I I think we got beat that day because of two fantastic goals. I don't think Manchester City were better. But tactically, especially in the first half, we were absolutely dynamite. Like, we did not a foot wrong. Barini scores the second one. Game over, in my opinion. But And when it didn't go in, I... If he just hit it before for me, if he hit it before, if he just knocked that one touch and Fletcher, second half, if he hadn't controlled it and just shot instead. But I think, you know, again, if ifs, buts and maybes, but to kind of touch on the positive that came from that, because no one left that feeling completely dejected, which I can't say about the last few visits to Wembley um, or any visit to Wembley apart from that one. 
But what was the tactical instructions? Because they were executed to a T. It was two wonder goals that done us. Not, we were never cut open, apart from right at the end when we were catching the game. So what were the tactical instructions that day? I think it was just for, for a week or 10 days before that, Gus just pumped into them that this is a one-off game. You're saying over the 38-42 games of the season, this is a one-off game, begging them to have belief in themselves, in their own ability to play against these players that they're going to play against. And it was, if I remember right, it was Barini coming in off the left. If I remember right, it was that sort of thing that Gus felt that if we come a little bit more lopsided, that we might be able to combat them a little bit more. Um, but my main memory, memory of it, it was him just literally trying to beg them to have belief in themselves for this one-off game, to keep the ball, pass the ball, make them run, you know, enjoy making Man City run, enjoy, you know, competing against them. Um, and it was that, it was, the, it was sheer belief that he, he tried to keep pumping into them. And with the backing that we had, fan base wise, you know, it shows, it's, you know, 50-50. There's only 50% of them and 50% of us. So, you know, just give them self-belief, really. I think that's what the, the key factor was in them seven or eight days before the game. You've got a, as a coach, naturally have a different mindset to a fan. It's just natural. It's just the way it is. But honestly, honestly, at halftime, you see the scoreboard 1-0. We've played well. We probably should be two up. It certainly should be closer to 2-0 than 1-1. At halftime, did you think we were going to do it? Did you think, you know what, we're close to this. I think we're going to immortalise the squad here. Did you think we were going to do it? I honestly thought that we could beat them. Yeah. At at halftime. I'll be honest, I didn't before the game. I thought if we get them to, you know, penalties or something like that, you know, or anything, or get a, a penalty ourselves, you know, it was going it to be tough, real tough. We knew anyone knows that. Common sense would tell you that. I'm not a defeatist. It's a fact. Yeah. Um, and it was a case of at halftime. I honestly felt because we went in that change room, them boys, they were pumped up. They weren't tired. They weren't breathing out of their backsides. They were, you know, everyone was happy to sit down, and listen to Gaffer and Tano speak and you know, get sorted out by the physios. Everyone was happy. They understood their instructions for the second half. And I thought, you know what? Maybe the penny completely drops today. Maybe we're lucky. Maybe we're fortunate that the penny drops today. But like you said, two wonder goals. And I mean, and they were great goals. And, but, yeah. and, and they could do that. <laughs> Any player, most of the players on their pitch could possibly do that, you know. Let alone toys and, and other players like that, you know, what, what do it. But, I just, I just honestly did think at half-time we could do it. One story from the cup final, which I think people don't touch on. And if I remember beforehand, I remember being a bit taken back. I don't know why. Um, but Barini played as the central striker. Uh, Nacho I think he asked him to play a little bit more on the left-hand side of that, being up front. Because it was the first time I think Barini had played out now, or one of the first times. It was. He played yeah. out an out-and-out striker. It was. And yeah, that's right. And he felt he could get up, if I remember right, he could get a little bit more joy on the left-hand side of it being up front. Not just saying they sat static up front, which he wouldn't, Barini. But I think it was more trying to come in on the left, well, from the left-hand side of it, if I remember right. But it was the first time I think Barini had played out-and-out striker. It was, yeah, 100% was. He'd, he was left pretty much all the time in his first spell. Second spell, a bit different, different managers and whatnot. But it was always left, and then he played him up front. But... I think one thing that a lot of people forget, and I don't know why I have this love for Josie Altidore, because he, 
he couldn't do much when he was at Sunderland. But he got left out of the squad completely. And I think it was actually Scott Gold that got put on the bench. Um, did you have yeah, to pick him up after that? Did you have, did he, like, what was it like when, was it Gus who broke the news to him? Because I'm imagining he's devastated. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I don't recall the conversation properly, but Gus always told the players, you know, if, he, if, it, if it was that was the case, um, unless it was a situation where he didn't feel he had to. Now, yeah. for instance, Bruni goes and, that's a league game, Bruni goes and scores a goal or two goals. He don't expect Josie to knock on his door and say, why didn't I play Gaffer? Well, the reason why the boy scored two goals, come and see me when he doesn't, you know? So if it was that scenario, Gus then wouldn't speak to him. But I'm sure he spoke to him. And of course, again, of course it is. It's, it's, it's picking people up. The good thing about Josie, he seemed like he, he had a, quite a good nature of being able to brush things off. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of us, a lot of any, anybody else, might have been a little bit more bitter and twisted towards the situation. Um, but he managed to brush it off and, and, and obviously go again. With the squad as it was, that was a great day. Um, but after that, we we really fell away, and I think everyone's described it in the same way. I think we could all feel it. Uh, Vito said it, Gus said it. After that final, I think everyone just shattered. I think it just it just knackered everyone for four or five weeks. And in truth, because of the poor start of the season we had under Decanio, we didn't have that time to feel sorry for ourselves, but we did. Um, but for you, what was the catalyst that created the great escape? What was the thing that changed that for you? I think it was just a case of every now and then reminding each other that we've got to go again. You know, you, 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 you can't dwell on it. You've got to go again. It, it, there's nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to go. And that includes us as staff, me, Gus and Tano. There's many times that we sat in a restaurant having a coffee or whatever and, and talking about it. And, you know, what can I do different? You've got to do what you do. What you do is defend. You, you try to defend well. You try to play football. If I played with two, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be us, and I don't think we've got the players to do it. And you know, so sometimes we'd 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 be sitting there with apples throwing them up in the air constantly, you know, hoping you catch them all. And but that's the nature. And all it was, I think, on a management side, Gus and Tano, Antonio, myself, and Bees, we managed to just keep going and try to keep the, getting the best out of them as much as we can. There was times that we went out on the training pitch, especially me and Andy Beasley and and Antonio Pintos to set up all the stuff and you're thinking you're waiting for them to come out and they're looking like their heads are in their, you know, in their socks. Their heads are right down and, and you got to do that. You got to try bringing them out. You got to try getting something out of them. They got to try doing it themselves because they're professional footballers and they're paid to. So it's, it's one of them ones where you, I just think we managed the staff to keep each other going at times and Gus led from the front on that. Do you think it helped that you had, and we're touching it before, Cats and O'Shea, um, big characters, club captains or vice captains, who'd probably, based on what happened previously, already bought in to what Gus and the team was wanting to do. So when the chips were down, obviously you've got a job to do to pick people up, but does it help having the likes of John O'Shea and Cat and all that can go, come on, lads. I mean, even Vito Manone, who had made yeah. that horrendous mistake against City and then he played an outstanding game four days later against Chelsea and if you look back the amount of saves he made he won us the game oh without a shadow of a doubt and you're right I mean I was talking on a management point of view there but on a plan point of view 
the good thing about being the well, the good or bad thing, the way that you want to, any way you want to spin it. But the good or bad thing about being um, what they say a character or you know high-profile player, John O'Shea, Catamult, there's nowhere to hide. Other players, there is somewhere to hide. Believe it or not, they can get, and then all of a sudden, sub comes off, and John O'Shea comes off, or Lee Catamult, Wes, Wes Brown. You know, you, oh, why is he taking? You know, he's taking off one of the big characters. So for them, it's harder because they, you know, there's nowhere to hide. Yeah. And they knew. My opinion is, my my honest opinion is, they knew they wouldn't get better than what Tano and Gus were doing. And I'm not on about the Kenya. I'm not on about whoever comes in afterwards or whatever. They knew that what what Gus and Tano we tried to give them was, you treat us with respect. We treat you with respect. You know, you do your job. That doesn't mean win every game. That means go out there and try doing the basics and the template of what we would like you to do. And if we get beat by something that, you know, we set up, it's our problem, not yours. And I've seen him many times go to players. That's not your fault, it's mine. So I think that they knew, them players, them, them strong characters, they knew that, I honestly believe, that they knew at that club, at that particular time, a year after or, or years before that, they wouldn't have got it any better than what we did. So for them to give it their all, it rubbed off even more so on the, on them players. Yeah. And I do believe that, you know, the way that Gus and Tano treated players and, you know, I'll say for instance, Manoni wanted to go back to home for an extra day longer in the, in the international break. Gus would give them it, but you, you come in in the afternoon as well. So they knew there was give and take. And I think they, they brought into that, which helped us so much, I think. And obviously, I'm a I'm a I'm a honest person in that aspect. I think that there was a lot of luck as well, and there's a lot of luck in life, and um and we we you know we rode our luck, but it was about time that we we got some back, yeah. And we got some good luck, and you know the boys kept plugging on, and that's how we managed to get there. In the end, it was brilliant for me after the Chelsea game because I come out with my partner after the game, and I had my bag, and there was about two or three coaches of Sunderland. And they were banging on the on the window, and I'm walking down Chelsea, and I live ten minutes from there. I live in Shepherd's Bush. I'm from Shepherd's Bush, and I've, all these Chelsea fans are looking at me. I'm, like, oh, I'm going to end up getting my head punched in it because of them lot on the coach. <laughs> but it was I wouldn't have changed that feeling for anything. And they're the feelings okay. that I love when I was at Sunderland. You know, them banging on that window. I was hoping they get stuck at the. I was hoping they get stuck at the lights and carry on banging because I loved it. It was excellent. One period that I suppose hasn't been touched on, and again, I, I, I hate speaking about negatives, but it's better to because it, it addresses rumours, stories, and thoughts. Um, we've touched on Bridcut. Bridcut didn't work out. But one one that was baffling because he's been excellent at every other club he's been at, Skorko. When he yeah. came in, where do you think that went wrong? I just think he found it really hard to settle in England. I've, I honestly do. I think we get this in Man United, get it, Chelsea, get it, every, Liverpool, get everybody gets a player, what that. And I think he just found it really difficult to to settle into the the way of life here. You know, again, it goes back down to diet and what you do and what you don't do, and you know and what they have and the access they've got to the food that they normally have. Um, I'm not saying you know we a third country or nothing like that. I'm just saying it, it you yeah. know, the way that they want to socialise and live, live their lives and, and things like that, I think he found it really tough. Really tough. And what a lovely kid. And, and he, wanted to, he wanted to make it work. Desperate to make it work. 
but I just think he found it really tough. And that was on an emotional level. And yeah. I don't even know about his, fa his family background where it could have been even something like that as well. But I'm only guessing there. But for me personally, I just think he found it really hard to settle. Can you pick it up when a, a player's struggling sort of maybe emotionally or psychologically? Can, can you almost tell as a coach when a player's not quite right? You get some good kidders. You get some, and I'm, you know, I'm talking on a personal level. I, you know, I could kid people when, you know, I was at work or, you know, playing, training, and I weren't in a good emotional space or a good headspace um, that I could kid people that I'm fine and, you know, crack on, go in the car and be, you know, terrible, you know, terrible in the, in the, in the headspace. So you get good people what can and kid it. But I think you get others what show their emotions in a way that, it's just body language with me and I, I would like to think I'm quite quite aware I'd like to think I'm quite aware and um, I think that's you know possibly one of my positives as a coach is that I think people body language shows you what they're feeling at times yeah. but you know I've got to be looking for it and again you can always get it wrong so the season ends and I think Gus had mentioned on the show previously there was an option for him to leave and I'm guessing the whole coaching team to leave if they wanted to um what conversation did the club have with you as a, a sort of a coaching team a coaching staff and why did you feel collectively it was the right decision to stay at the time if I'm not asking an okay. obvious question oh no 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 I, th I think um I think it was a lot of things you watering it watering it all down is that we got preparing one <clears throat> We are at a club what on a normally regular basis is struggling during the season, you know, to fight relegation and, and things like that. But on the other side of that coin, it's a Premier League club. It's a Premier League club. You don't get no better in a sense of a league base than a Premier League club in England. So, you know, to walk away, yes, Gus had that option with his staff to, to, to walk away. We had this conversation, you know, constantly, you know, four or five of us and... And it was just all about just different opinions. And we really wanted to give it a go. We really honestly thought that, you know, we'd, we'd get enough backing that we can dice up a few things and move a few things around what would benefit the players and obviously benefit the club. Gus is no, nobody's, nobody's fool. And obviously you've gathered that by having a conversation is that he won't expect 50 million from the chairman and give nothing back. You know, so he knew that they'd be having to wheel and deal and things like that. And I just, my personal opinion is that I thought we, we thought that we can, you know, move the club forward in the right avenue and not be fighting the third and fourth, second from bottom all the time and, and maybe fight for that middle spot, that area just below middle. And we didn't think we we're going to go and win it or, you know, we weren't stupid like that. But we honestly thought that if we can get the right players in to give us that sprinkle of quality around the pitch that we could get them to play the football that we like the gaffer likes and tano likes and what they believe in what a place to live and be because of the first thing is i don't know if gus told you this the first thing that we done as a management group was said that we will not live in newcastle when we first got the job and all of a sudden we were living and we will stay in sunderland and we'd be part of sunderland and we'll stay there and that's us not in newcastle where everything seems to be nice or people think it's better we're living in Sunderland and that's where we're going to be. And it was the same. If we give them that sprinkle of quality around the pitch 
And we don't, if we could do that and get the results going our way a little bit more, what a place to live with the fan base of what we got. Great place to live. And I think that's what made us, that's what made us, you know, go into that, that sort of mindset of thinking we, we can, we could turn things around. I think it's completely understandable. Absolutely. And I mean, I was quite surprised when I was told that there was actually the option there. I thought it would have been the way the club was at the time, no brainer. But obviously I've you know, spoken to Gus about the frustration of not signing Alonso, Barini and Key. And I think he said collectively, probably as a team and not just him, his main frustration was that he felt he had to get another bunch of players buying into how the team wanted to play. Not that, the, for example, Alonso was better than Van Anholt, not talking about players that are better, but you're talking about players that have already bought into the squad, the team, they've lived in the area, you know that they fit. So as a first-team coach, how frustrating is it that you coach the likes of Alonso, Barini, Key, make them better players collectively, and then you see the club bringing in new players and basically going in a direction which is, whichever way you look at it, different to where the coaching staff thought they were going to go. Is that frustrating? Oh, it was... um... It was an absolute killer for us because straight away, I don't know about Gus and that because obviously I wouldn't want to sit there after a week or two weeks of pre-season being in wherever we were, Portugal or whatever, and sitting there going, this, this is not what we, we thought we were buying into. This is not what we, where we thought we were going. Um, and start putting a dampener on his thoughts and his opinion and his coaching, what he's setting up for the next day and two, ses- two sessions a day and, and things like that. So it was certain thoughts in my head thinking this is like, um, you know, this is not, this is a myth. This is not what we, we signed up for in a, in a roundabout way. And that's where I'm gutted for Tano and Gus because obviously give, I felt guilty because I give my opinion and my opinion was to stay and yeah. give it a go. Um, so that's why I felt guilty. And then I felt the sorry part was they've thrown all their cards in, they've thrown all their chips in to, to really give it a go for something the following year, um, hence us staying. Um, and that's when I felt a little bit more, you know, the carpet's been pulled underneath your, your standing, you know? And that's when it become a little bit sad. But then again, the mentality is you've got to roll your sleeves up and you've got to go with what you've got. And that's all we could do. How frustrating is it though that, yeah, you know, I think it's out in the open now that Alonso was offered for 3.5 million with like another million on top if we stayed up. We decided to go for someone like Patrick Van Anholt for 1.5 million because it saves a bit of money. And I think, you know, you've alluded to it yourself. I think everyone was aware there'll probably be a bit of wheeling and dealing there. But then you get Rodwell and Ricky Alvarez and you splash out big money on players when Rodwell's going to cost the same amount of money as Key. And we've already touched on how important Key was. I mean, could you get your head around? Did you have any idea why they were doing that? Uh, I've got thoughts in my head why they were doing it. And you've got to be some sort of train spotter not to get what, what you think, you know, your thoughts were behind what their thoughts were by doing it. Common sense would tell you, there was, he was a no-brainer. Yeah. If, if, he, if he weren't our best player, then, well, you know, he, he was close to it. You know, and you're bringing, you're bringing in a player that you, you don't know, you know of, but you don't know. So for me, it was something which goes back to the conversation we had half an hour ago was cutting back down to the roots. Cutting back down to the roots should have happened 12 months before that. And maybe those scenarios wouldn't have happened because Gus would have signed Key and, you know, whoever, Alonso or whoever, because he'd have had 
I wouldn't say more power. I wouldn't have said that at all, but maybe a bigger, a bigger opinion, maybe being able to convince the chairman because he'd have had that more one-on-one -on -one base with the chairman. That chairman, please believe me, it, 10, 10 million on 10, either one, we know this one. This yeah. one's bulletproof. We, you know, we can count on him. This one we don't know. So I think cutting back to the roots was the problem, if you understand what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was, it was planting a new tree, wasn't it? Pretty much to use the, a, an analogy. It was, you've built a tree. You've, it's quite nice. It's getting some leaves on there and it's getting there or thereabouts. And then you're just chopping that one down and planting a brand new one and hoping that it grows the same way for absolutely no reason whatsoever. But the annoying thing about that as well, and I don't want to attack any specific players because I don't think it's the right thing to do. But I think it's no secret that we were linked to the likes of uh, Van Dyke. We were linked to Alderweireld, uh, two players who've gone on the Champions League finals. Did Gus branch on about Van Dyke? Did Gus branch on about Van Dyke? He did, he, but he gave a okay. very, uh, he gave a, I think, yeah. a diplomatic answer um, on the record. He said that obviously it was someone he, that he'd looked at, but I think for me, and maybe this is comparing people, and I don't know if there's blame to be had or if it was just one of those things that don't work out. So I suppose I'll just ask your opinion on it. You're linked to Van Dyke, you're linked to um, Toby Alderweireld, and you get Sebastian Quartes on loan. Do you think there was, was that a case of, again, going back to what Rutgers said, we needed a centre-half, so you just take it when we realistically should have been pushing out the boat to get the likes of the Van Dykes, the Alderweireld. Like, how close were we to those players, like the top-class players? Well, the top-class player, that you, Van Dyke, I know was um, we had a, uh, I felt we had a really good chance. If it was left, and this is, again, I don't speak to Gus every week. I only spoke to him for maybe three weeks now. But, so I'm not trying to blow smoke up his backside. It's a fact. If it was left down to Gus, we'd have had a, a really good chance, I think. Yeah. And if these things, situations would have been left down to Gus a little bit more, we might have been in a better situation to fight the season you know, pre-season wise, because, but, you know, people sometimes, and like you know, at, at the top, they want to be honest enough and want to show you that they're being the best they can be for you. And they're not. They're being the best that they can for themselves and for other people. And, but we're the ones who have got, to, well, Gus is the one who's got to take the brunt end of it because he's the one who's getting, we're all getting sacked, but it's his name. So we're fighting for a left back. They, they signed an iron hole. We're signing for, we're struggling for a centre half. We signed a centre half. We signed right back. We're desperate for a right back. We signed, you know. So we was always begging for a player, and you can't be begging for players at that time of year. No. You know, you got to near enough have your squad settled, and if you need to, you know, throw the dice in on one or two players here and there, then so be it. But certainly your back four, if not six of them, because you need a bit of cover, or seven of them, they should be done and dusted, and it wasn't. How frustrating does it become as well when the likes of, say, Quartes comes in? I'm sorry, Sebastian, if you're ever listening, but I'm going to use you as a good example here. But Sebastian Quartes comes in, for example, and he's Uruguayan. Gus must have wanted him. And I think it's pretty obvious now in hindsight he didn't. But you're bringing in these players that you need them. You needed a right back. You needed a centre-off. You needed a midfielder. You needed a left winger. You actually had and Connor Wickham there. These don't work. You know it's not going to work because this is not the way it had planned to work. But as fans, you get frustrated with the results and you look straight towards the management. 
how frustrating does that become? Because I remember the open, the open letter that came out and a lot of people have opinions on that. And a lot of people say, you know, well, he was the manager. It should have been right. But did it sometimes feel like because Congerton came in, in your opinion, that Gus was just a coach whoever came in and the plan that you had the year previously was just torn up? Oh, I've got no doubt whatsoever in my mind. I've got no doubt whatsoever. Gus and the club were getting on just fine. Um, okay, things weren't moving in the right direction in certain avenues, but sometimes mm. you don't get your cake and eat it. That's why, you know, that happens. And, and them two, Gus and Tanner, would live and die by that. You know, they, they don't expect everything. But I definitely felt that the, the, the chess pieces had moved um, considerably, like quite a lot in that sense, because it just didn't seem right in my mind. And, and it just didn't sit right that, you know, certain things had been, you know, promised and never delivered. Yeah. And I thought that was a little bit harsh. And again, like you said, you've got Conor Beckham playing left wing and, and you're trying to get, again, square pegs and round holes and you're trying your best. And then players are trying their best as well. But, you know, if, they, if fans think for one second that we wanted to play Conor Wickham left, we want to play Conor Wickham. If he weren't playing up front, we want him on the bench to come and play up front. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's what we wanted. But yeah, you know, situations happened and situations where, you know, things I don't think was being told the truth. And, and again, you know, and like you said, fans sitting there and especially where we sit, especially at home at Sunderland, you know, you get the fans what come up to the, to the sidelines and they, they air, the, air their views and rightly so they pay their money. But it's just, you know, if you, if you could have sat there for 10 minutes and told them a few home truths, which I'm sure they already know, but. They want to blame someone, you know, whatever they get, they want to pay into their clubs and, and their family. So we, we, we got that. We understood that. And even, you know, after the Villa game, we understood, you know, what the decision was going to be. Was there anyone at the club that specifically wanted Ricky Alvarez apart from Lee Congan? Well, to be, to be honest, I mean, it, it was, he brought him to the table. Um, and again, it's a case of, you look at his clip. I looked at his clips as well, you know, because I don't, I don't know him that well. I know of him, but I don't know him that well. And you think, can he bring us something? But you know, again, even the deal on that was absolutely astounding. It, I mean, I don't try to make out I'm an educated guy in any capacity, but who else? Who did they blame? The, did they blame Gus again for that? You know, it was like, oh my good god. <clears throat> so Gus, what Gus likes to do, I'm sure he's touched on it as he does like to talk. <laughs> he, likes to have, he likes to have A, B and C plan. And if, if he can't get A, the one that he wants, obviously it's set all with B, but if C's got to do, he's got to do. And it was one of them ones. Again, it was, but the biggest problem we had was them A, B and C plans. Well, that was happening left back, right back and centre half. Yeah. You know, what? You know, Seb coming in, you know, centre half and things like that. You know, there was no way in the world that that was Gus's first plan to, to bring him in. Or, you know, so it was, again, it was just, it was, it was soul destroying. You even had soul destroying. Revillier at left back. Yep. A 35 year old always played at right back playing yep. at left back because Van Anholt was injured. So there was no secondary option to, I think it was and Van Anholt. But... Yeah, I think it was. But, Again, I think he even said to the gaffer, because the gaffer being the gaffer, he can speak French. So, 
just telling him. And I said, what did he say? He said he'd play left back if he wants me. He said he'd play centre midfield if, if I asked him to. <laughs> and that's the sort of uh, Billy Jones and, and, and him. They're the sort of the players that we had that would give their all for us and for the cause. But they wouldn't have been no one's first choice. Nobody's first choice. You know, if, if they were coaching, they would have said that bringing other people, you know, I'll be your second or third choice. Yeah. But that was what, that's what Gus had, and that's how his hands were tied. How much of the mindset, I think this was in October, I can't remember the exact date, but the Southampton game, um, I think a lot of people looked at the Southampton game and said, Gus, which would have been the entire coaching staff, changed the mindset at that. I think a lot of people would say, quite frankly, they went, oh, shit, like, we need to change this. But after that 8-0, in your mind's eye, did you change anything? Did you think this needs to change because the players that we've got is getting hammered eight now? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was definitely a thought what went through my mind. It was one of them ones where it's very good, it, it's very good the gaffer and he, he digests everything and, and things like that. And maybe I'm a, lot, I'm a little bit more, you know, gun ho You know, we need to do this, we need to do that. And, but, he, you know, in his head, it was borderline a freak of nature. Um, and he felt that we need to just strip back, start again defensively and go again and start building and trying to play from midfield and start. And, and he, he, you know, took two days, three days for all of, all of us to, to calm the hell down and, and just, you know, relax. And it was horrendous what happened to us. And, all of us would have dug a hole and, and put ourselves in it if we could and covered ourselves over. But we couldn't. And again, there's nowhere to hide. He's a character, Gus. I'm a character, but he, he's the one was, you know, the stones are going to be thrown at. The Lee Catamals, the John O'Shea's. There's nowhere to hide. So the next, the next training session, don't throw in an injury or the gaffer say, I'm not feeling well. There's nowhere to hide. We've got to come back in and we've got to start again. And you've got to take the brunt end of, of the fans. You've got to take it in the papers. I've got to take the Mickey being taken out of me from back home in London. I've got to take it. But when something does happen good, you know, bottle it. Bottle it and keep it. And that's all you can do. There was no way that we started saying, well, tell you what, we've got to beat up. We're just going to boot the ball up front um, and just try playing from there. We're not like that as a coach. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't build me as a coach to be like that. Yeah. You know, he didn't help build me into being a coach like that. And I certainly never seen them to work like that. So that was, a, that was definitely out of the window. It was a case of stripping it back down and let's all get our mindset right again, calm down for a couple of days and let's go again. Strip it all back. And that's where I've learned from them where they're very, very, very good. Yes, please. So. Looking at the sort of that season then, I suppose towards we're going... Yeah, we beat Newcastle. Brilliant day, fantastic day. When like that moment when it hit the back, that you seen the net ripple, fabulous. But that aside, I think things went a bit, things went a bit sour. And I think now, again, in hindsight, you can see why. Um, but at what point did you start realizing that things were turning sour, and like Ella Short might pull the plug, not just on Gus, but obviously you yourself, because yeah. we're talking about we're not just talking about someone being sacked in a football team here. We're talking about someone who's uprooted, been in a place for 18 months. It's, it is your job. It's, let's look at it from a different perspective. So you must 
always have that in your mind's eye when you're getting beat. But when did you start realizing that, hang on, I think something might turn here? Yeah, I mean, it got, it got to a couple of weeks before. The, I think it was the Villa game was our last one, wasn't it? Yeah, Brat, Bradford, <laughs> and, Bradford and Villa were like the two that yeah. stick out in my mind's eye. Yeah, um, and it was a couple of, maybe a couple of games before then. My missus kept saying to me, what do you think, what do you think? And it was, it was getting me to the boiling point with her. I don't want to hear it no more because what we do, see, a little bit different because they've moved all their lives. Yeah. They've moved, you know, countries, let alone uh, clubs and things like that. So for me, it was, you know, it was a, it was a big move. And what we've done, like I said, Gus and Tanner have done the same, but we've done it, me and Jane went up with a dog and we brought into the city, hence you knowing people that I know, or I know people that you know up there. Yeah. He was up, we had hairdressers up there, barbers up there. We, you know, friends up there, local pub that we had there, restaurant that we used to use. Um, so we, you know, it was it was a dev- devastating time for for me and her because she took it bad as well because she built up a friendship, friendships along the way and and things like that. And it was just becoming a, a point of it, 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 it. It's like Christmas is coming sooner or later. It's coming because we couldn't change it. We couldn't we couldn't bring in people what was not there. Yeah, and we were asking to the players what couldn't do it to keep trying to do it. So we started packing our boxes up probably you know probably a couple of weeks before of the house because I rented a house um, and so we had family what would come up the kids would come up and things like that so we had a whole house to pack so um, yeah we had Scott and people around to help us and it was like what are you doing this for you know you don't know what's going to happen yeah okay but all I'm doing is it's the it's the books and things like that and it weren't because we was getting defeated or nothing like that it was a case of it was just coming to a point of what else, what else can we do? What else can I can I possibly do? And that was the thing what was really, really tough for me on, on a personal level, that was. Um, and that was because, you know, me and Jane had the dog there and the kids was coming up all the time. And I just felt uh, maybe a week or two weeks before that, that I, we started thinking, I think, you know, if we don't get a result here, we're out. Do you think and then the tough thing for us is that I don't just jump in a car and I go. It's that, like I said, we had a whole house there and, and friends and, and family up there. So the last thing, again, I wanted to do on an emotional level was to dwell on that and stay in a place that people go back to work and you go and see them down the pub or a restaurant and then they go back to work and you're sitting around all day again when you know you've got to get back, you, you're going to go back down south. So that was really tough and that, that took a little bit of healing that one the Sunderland job to be honest do you think and again we're talking hindsight which is always wonderful um and the way that the club's maybe gone which has not gone well don't know if you've noticed um but do you think that Gus and the team should have been given more time if I remember rightly and you can shoot me down in flame I don't think we was ever in the bottom four no about 17th, 16th, I think. I think the Villa game dropped us to 18th. I think it was the Villa game. And I think we dropped into the relegation place at that point. And that's when the trigger was pulled. That was the first time. So everybody else in the, the seasons before and possibly the seasons after had, had time, even if they was in that area. Um, and so I, I personally think that that, that had... But, for anything like that to happen at a club like Sunderland, I think you need the backing of the club. So, for instance, Ellis Short saying, I don't care what happens until December. I don't care. 
that man's the man for till then. Or I'm not saying to the end of the season because we could have got pumped every week for four, you know, four nil every week for the next four games, and he looks an absolute idiot. I'm not saying that, but at least come out and make a statement, and then maybe we again we could have stripped back without sounding stupid the fans and gone right. Listen, this is what we're trying to achieve. This is what we're trying to do. How we're trying to do it. This is the players that we've got. Maybe you could have got by. You could have ended up giving the fans a little bit more to, to cling on to and getting a little bit more out of them by giving you a little bit more breathing space. Because there was so much positive there, and sometimes I feel you summed it up really well before you said, this is when it got a little bit sad. And you're totally right, because it is that the, the Gus Poyet era, that 18 month, 2013-14 was my favourite season following Sunderland, easily. Without a doubt, the great escape, beating Newcastle twice. And, you know, the, the, the results that came in, that beating Man City and the semi-final, all of that, that goes with it, the cup run. But then the season afterwards was really sad because there's the 8-0. There's, yeah, there was a 1-0 win against Newcastle, but there was loads of nil nils and it felt like we'd stagnated and stuff like that. But there's a lot of positive in reality that has come from that. There's just unfortunately with many part of something over the past few years, more questions than, than answers, unfortunately. Um, but all in all, I think if you summed up the Gus Poirier era and that time frame, Sunderland fans would give you the majority of good memories. So what are your best, what's your best memory from Sunderland? What's the one thing that you took from it as something that will never... It's going to sound stupid and this ain't trying to be um, naive or, or anything like that. Best memory I've got of, of Sunderland was going there. Good answer. Was going there. And that's by a country mile. Because I, I tell you, it, it, it's, and I would say this, I'd go on record of saying it, the Northern, the Northern people and the Southern people are different breeds in a lot of aspects. I don't mean by all, but a lot of aspects. The warmth of a Northern person to a Southern person is, is, is a lot different. And the way that they made us welcome when we moved up there, um, me and Jane and, and, and the family come up and, and things like that, was unbelievable. And the friendships that are made will never be broken. So I'm, you know, I'm over the moon that we went there. And the way that they treated us at first, me, Gus Tano, Arnie Beasley and that, there was no, there's no one that could have done enough for us. It was absolutely unbelievable. And so for me, the best thing I ever done, well, the best thing for me out of Sampton was moving up there. Easy. Charlie, thanks very much. Pleasure, mate. Absolutely.